Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church. I hope you're ready today. I'm excited about today's passage. I know you should always be excited, but today I'm like really excited. Is that okay? And uh, we're going to get into Matthew chapter 5. If you got a Bible, I uh, hope you do. Please uh, open it up. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We've been doing this series, as you can see from the video, called Upside Down. And what we've been doing is walking through a sermon that Jesus preached, probably his most famous sermon ever. It's, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5. So if you would turn in your Bibles there, that'd be great. And as you're turning there, uh, I was thinking about, it was about two or three months ago, I was sharing in a sermon. I know some of you are newer to our church Maybe you didn't even know we existed two or three months ago. I'm glad you're here. But for those of you who were here two or three months ago in a sermon, I mentioned how we love instant gratification. And I brought up, mistakenly, I found out later, Amazon. And I talked about how Amazon gets you a package in two days. And then after the sermon, several of you, not just one, so you're not alone if you think I'm picking on you right now, several of you came to me immediately. So if I get something wrong on stage, you're quick to let me know that. Even if it's it's not from the Bible, just so you know. You're quick to let me know that. And several of you came to me and said, no, you need to know about Prime Now. It's not just two days. We can get an hour, maybe two hours, and you are spreading the gospel of Prime Now. You are on it. And I'm thinking to myself as people are saying it, that's my point. <laughs> but I was thinking this week about pictures. Talk about instant gratification. And I can look around the room, and I know some of you are a lot younger than me, some of you are a little older than me, but I remember when I was a kid taking pictures, it took weeks to get the results. <laughs> like now we've got these cameras, right? There's an HD camera on here. It does things I would have never dreamed. Think 10, 15, 20 years ago. Think how much of our lives have changed because of these phones. But we didn't even know what HD was, much less you could pull out of your, your pocket and have filters on your pictures. You could see, if you didn't like it, you could delete it, you know, swipe to the side and get a new one and do all that. When I was a kid, just so you know, some of y'all young people would be like, man, that dude is old. Listen to what I used to do. They used to have film that you would put in a camera. You had to crank it to get it ready. Do you remember what I'm talking about? 25, 36 pictures in there, depending if you bought the good film or the bad film. And then you take pictures and you didn't know what you took a picture of no screen to show you, nothing. And so listen to what you had to do. You had to take it, put it in an envelope, take it to some store, drugstore, whatever, take it down to CVS, Walgreens, drop it off. You didn't see that thing. Like by the time I got my film back, I forgot what happened. And you'd drop it off and some stranger would take it in the back. They would develop your pictures and they'd put it on a shelf and the shelves would be like labeled, you know, ABC all the way to the alphabet. And we didn't have social media. This is where social media came from, okay? Some weirdo would go through the shelves and look at your pictures of people they didn't know. And now we call it social media. You just scroll on your phone, look at pictures of people you don't know, right? That's kind of how it worked. But I'd get pictures back, and I'd have taken a picture of, like, my thumb, and I had to pay for it still. I'd be like, what is that picture? Now we get it, and it's like you take this phone, take a picture instantly. You got that picture back. Between the phone and me cranking the film, they had this other invention they called a Polaroid camera. Remember the Polaroid camera? Some of y'all know the Polaroid camera? All right, some of y'all clap for the Polaroid camera. I really like that. And what would happen with the Polaroid camera, and I've got one here, like all fads, they come back. And so my daughter wanted one of these last year. And so we got her the Polaroid camera. This, my original one didn't, wasn't this color, just so you know. But uh, we got her one. And what happens is you take a picture and the film comes right out of the side. And it doesn't instantaneously develop, but you can watch it develop. And so I got this camera and I'm, it doesn't take great pictures, and so like if I take a picture of you, it's not that good, but I'm gonna take a selfie this morning. I don't know if people have done selfies with Polaroids before, so we'll start a new Sunday selfie with Polaroids, all right? Start. This is not an exercise in vanity. I promise there's actually a point to this in just a second. And so, should I do duck lips? 
I did high. How does that work? I'll just do a normal one here for you. There we go. It's an interactive sermon, so I'm gonna need some help here. So if you could help me take this back to the tech booth. Just give that to Mark back there. That'd be awesome. And so what happens with these pictures is they come out. Hey, Mark, when you get that, you gotta shake it, okay? Just in case you didn't know. Shake that thing up there. Is that they, they take a little while to develop. Not like film, like two weeks, but, you know, at 10 seconds, you got a little different picture than you had 10 seconds before that, and 10 seconds later, and take about a minute, 90 seconds, you got a developed picture. And so when you t- first take the picture, what you got? Just a piece of film. A picture was taken. You have no idea what it actually is, just a white blob there. We got phase two. We got the next one yet? You can start to see, you can start to see some shape there. It's happening, I still can't tell. Like you're not even positive if that's a person there, but you can see some stuff. Third, yep, there we go. You get the, good, do we got a developed one? You've been shaking it back there, you got it ready? There, you're gonna see my eyes, see how that happens? And I was thinking about these pictures, and then what oftentimes happens in church too, like we've been doing this series through Matthew, and you look at Matthew chapter five, and it's showing us this is what a follower of Jesus looks like. And what happens for some of us is we, we see that and we're like, that's not what I look like. So like, so my follower of Jesus, but what you gotta remember is when you trust Christ as your savior, what God sees when he looks at you positionally is he sees Jesus. But what happens in our lives is we're developing and we're all at a different place. And some of you may have just placed your faith in Jesus and you're like phase one, you're like the, the white blob. Like something happened, but we can't tell what it's going to be yet. And then some people in the spiritual development, it's like you know, that, that first picture you saw where you start to see the shape and we can see some development taking place, but it's still really sloppy and there's still lots of mess with all that. And then, and then some people, it's like you, maybe you're more mature in your faith and you've had some ups and downs. Maybe you've blown it and thought about even walking away from the faith but then God called you back and reconciled you or you've, you've gone through some pain and you've learned to trust and you can see the image that God's creating and recreating in your life. See, old things pass away. He makes all things new and he creates you new. And then finally, there's a a fully developed disciple. And you can really see what God's doing. And the question I wanna ask you today is, what's God's vision for your life? Or what does it look like for you to be a fully developed disciple of Jesus Christ? Because that's what we've been looking at in Matthew chapter five. I already asked you to turn in your Bibles there, but just the, the context of what's happening, in case maybe you're new today, or just a reminder of what we've been looking at is that Jesus is at the pinnacle of his popularity. Remember that? because he's just started his ministry. He's never gonna get more popular than he is right now. He starts teaching and his first message is really simple. Hey, stop, stop where you're going because you're heading the wrong direction. Even the Old Testament says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. And what all of us do, it's actually called sin, is that we follow our hearts. We do what we think is right. The Bible says that the heart is deceptive and wicked, deceitful above all things. And that's called sin in the Bible. We oftentimes think sin is just like adultery and lying and murder, but it's whenever we do what we think is best as opposed to what God says. And Jesus says, repent. That's the word he uses for, hey, you're going the wrong way, turn around. And then he calls his first followers. And his first followers leave everything to come follow him. They're committed, they're in. And then he goes into Galilee, and he doesn't do this everywhere, but at this time he goes into the city and he heals every disease. There's not a person that's still sick. After Jesus comes in, they're bringing all the sick. And it says right in chapter four, if you don't believe me, read it right before, verse 23 to 25 in that range. It says he healed all the the seizures. He healed all the blind eyes. He healed all the legs, the people who couldn't walk. He healed every disease. And then everybody's coming around. You can imagine, they're ready for anything this guy has to say. And he goes up on top of a mountain and he sits down because that's what teachers would do to explain the scriptures. The first word out of his mouth hits on their greatest felt need, 
blessed. Everybody wants to live a blessed life. It's a Greek word, makarios. It's a deep inner satisfaction. It could be translated happiness, but it's not happiness like we oftentimes think of, where our circumstances make us happy. It's the kind of happiness that circumstances can't touch. It says, blessed, and then he goes on to say some things that sound the opposite of this world, are the poor in spirit. Wait, I thought you were supposed to gather as much as you could. That was the goal in life. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're totally dependent upon God. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted by God. Blessed are the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, and goes through these things that seem upside down, but I've told you in this series, it's not that what Jesus says is upside down. It's that this world that we live in is upside down. We live in a world that says that sin is normal and that righteousness is wrong, or at least weird. And then Jesus goes on. We've seen seven of the eight so far. I'm gonna tell you something. If the first seven are true in your life, the eighth one's guaranteed. Here's what the eighth one is, verse 10, Matthew 5. Blessed, makarios, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, that's the first commandment we've had in this sermon, by the way. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's not functioning according to its purpose. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket that would defeat the purpose, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, uses these two metaphors, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to you. No, they're not even seeing you. Your Father who's in heaven. You see, a fully developed picture of you as a follower of Jesus Christ looks like Jesus Christ. With your skin on and your facial features, living in the world that you live in, with your talents and your abilities and your resources, but reflecting Jesus Christ. And what happens as we walk through this passage is each one of these, they're called Beatitudes, which is just a Latin word that means blessing. These blessing statements, blessed are, makarios are, happy are, each one of these builds on the other one. It's spiritual development that we're seeing take place. And then what we see, what we just read, is how people respond to the gospel, how people respond to Jesus in your life as you proclaim him through the way you live and the words that you say, as you're poor in spirit and you depend upon him, as you mourn over sin, as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, as you seek peace between other people and between them and God because you've received peace. And there's two responses, one's negative, one's positive. So here's the big overarching idea of today's message. This is the main point, is this. That God wants to do a spiritual transformation in us that leads to a gospel saturation in the world around us. God wants to transform you. We're all at different stages of that transformation, though. He wants to transform you in such a way that it then has an impact in this world. It's not just so you can live your best life now. You can be the best version of yourself. He's not trying to find the good in you and bring it out. He's recreating you new in his image to look like Jesus. And as he does that spiritual transformation in you, he does a work of gospel saturation through you and the world around you but people respond differently to the gospel. Some reject it, some receive it, some give glory to God in heaven because of it, but don't receive it. And we see that in this passage. 
And what we see here is a working out of who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. And so today, for the sub-points, our main points, spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. But for the sub-points, I've got three B statements I want to give you. If this spiritual transformation is taking place in your life, the gospel saturation is happening in the world around you, be ready for opposition. That's our first one. Be ready for opposition. Did you see the, the, the eighth beatitude, the eighth blessing statement in here? Is Blessed, happy are those who are persecuted. Now, nobody here is seeking persecution. You're not commanded to seek persecution. But if those first seven things, meekness, peacemaker, poor in spirit, mourning over sin are happening in your life, you're coming up against this world because you're following Jesus. You're becoming more like Jesus. And here's the reality of the Jesus of the Bible. He's countercultural. So when I say if you're following Jesus, some of you might not hear this correctly because the Jesus you're following is an American version of Jesus. He's being preached at churches all across America today and even we've spread this false gospel around the world. American Jesus exists to give you the American dream and sprinkle some Bible verses on it, okay? Here's the problem. That Jesus isn't gonna save you. He didn't die for you. We made him. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That Jesus wants you healthy and wealthy and comfortable and carefree and he exists to help you get to that end. That is our culture, by the way. We've just baptized that into the name of Jesus and then created a false religion. If you're following that Jesus, that's, you're not gonna meet opposition. Nobody's gonna oppose you. Everybody wants that. But if you follow the Jesus of the Bible, he's countercultural in every way. Like, think about what he says. Think about just simple statements like this. We know them. Some of us, we believe them. But, like, really? It's better to give than receive? Jesus says that. That's countercultural, by the way, especially in a materialistic culture. How about this? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Really? Because vengeance feels really good. How about this? If anyone, even if you live in America, if anyone wants to follow me, you got to take up your cross, deny yourself. Wait, I thought you existed for me to be my best self to live my best life now. But Jesus says the opposite of that. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose your life. Like everything he says is countercultural. And so here's what happens. When you go against the grain, you meet resistance. Has anybody here ever driven down a wrong way on a one-way street? Anybody want to admit that? I like you in the back row. Yep, all right. It makes me feel good about me. Appreciate that, ma'am. Yeah, I've done it. I was thinking this week about one of the first times I remember doing it. Uh, my wife and I were visiting Dallas, Texas, thinking about living there. Eventually went to seminary there. But I, did, I knew one guy in the city. I didn't have any money, so I borrowed his car, Toyota Corral stick shift. That was not a fun car to drive around town when I hadn't been driving a stick for like 10 years. And so I get in this guy's car, driving around town. I got it towed. That's a totally different story. But I remember when I was bringing it back to him, still had chalk on the windows. I'm pulling down the street to his apartment, and the last time I had been there was when we picked the car up, and he comes walking out of his apartment. He's like, hey! And I'm like, hey! <laughs> but you're going the wrong way down a one way! I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. But that's just, everyone knows that. I'm glad the resistance was him and not a semi-truck. You ever go to a, a marathon or a 5K and you see them hit, shoot the gun off? Try running towards the starting line. <laughs> you meet some resistance. You go tubing down a river, try and go up river against the people. Like, anytime you go against the grain, you're gonna meet resistance. If you're following the Jesus of the Bible... You are countercultural. You will meet resistance. Some practical examples I got from John Piper. I'll read a few of them to you. If you want to look it up, you can find it on your own. I'm not going to read all of them to you. He says this. If your values are different than the world's values, it's going to cause conflict. He says, if you cherish chastity, your life will be an attack on people's love for free sex. If you pursue self-control, your life will indict excessive eating. 
If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose worldly mindedness of those around you. In other words, if you go against the grain, you're gonna meet conflict. Here in this passage, though, we're not talking about just any kind of conflict. Did you notice that? Go back to verses 10 and 11. There's a specific, there's two phrases in here you gotta get to understand what we're talking about. Because some of you have experienced persecution, but it's not persecution for your faith. Look at what it says. Blessed are those who are persecuted, and here's the first key phrase, for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Here's the second phrase. On my account. See, some of us, Christians, but we're judgmental and we're difficult to be around and people don't like you. And that's not because you're a Christian. That's because you're judgmental and difficult to be around. Okay? That's not the kind of persecution we're talking about here. Some of you, you do, you've done the wrong things. Like you've cheated, you've lied, and people don't trust you. And so you meet opposition because of that. Some of you, you view other people like transactions. And you're using them to get where you want or get what you want. And that, they're either helping you or they're blocking you. And let me tell you something. People don't like you either. You're a jerk. This verse doesn't say, blessed are the jerks. They will be persecuted. No, it says, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. What does it mean to be for righteousness' sake? Well, if you remember when we were back in verse six, we talked about what righteousness is. And righteousness is a desire to do the will of God. And so when you've met resistance because you're doing what God desires for you to do, which there's hundreds of those things stated clearly just in the Bible, then that's persecution for righteousness' sake. When you're persecuted, when people think, you're really narrow-minded because you say there's only one way to heaven, and you're going, no, that's what Jesus said. That's on my account. For righteousness' sake, you're being resisted. When, when you're resisted or people don't want to be around you because you won't partake in their gossip, because you won't indulge in their sin, then you condemn that gossip by your behavior and you meet resistance, that's persecution for righteousness' sake. When, when people, maybe, maybe you don't get a promotion or something bad happens and, and somebody's saying things that aren't even true about you because you've condemned something in their lives by the way that you're just living as you're desiring to follow Jesus, do his will, that's the kind of persecution we're talking about. And that's the kind of persecution that's guaranteed. In fact, Jesus says, they hated me, they're gonna hate you. Some of them receive my word, then they'll receive you. Like, you're gonna get different responses from different people based on their hearts. And so it's kind of ridiculous. Like, it's only in America that we would even come up with this idea that if you follow Jesus, you'll get a Mercedes. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a Mercedes, but it's not because, you were, it's not because Jesus was like, yeah, a good follower, boom, here's what you got. Like, this idea of the prosperity gospel, this health and wealth idea, like, that's actually nonsensical. It doesn't even make sense. We're following a guy, like he's at the pinnacle of his popularity right now, so let me just be real clear. If you're not being persecuted this moment, that doesn't mean you're gonna be persecuted continually. Different people are persecuted at different moments. He's at the pinnacle of popularity right now. In case you haven't read the rest of the New Testament, let me tell you what happens. They kill him. He gets betrayed by one of his best friends. He gets beaten, flogged, then nailed to a tree. The Bible says you're cursed if you're nailed to a tree. He gets nailed to a tree, you know why? Because he's taking on the curse of sin. Your sin and my sin, and he's doing what we can't do. He's becoming sin on the cross so that we can become righteousness. That's the gospel. 
But this idea that if we follow a guy who's nailed to a cross, somehow that's gonna lead to a carefree, comfortable life is something we'd only make up in America. Jesus says, woe to you if all men speak well of you. That's what they do with false prophets. In John chapter 15, he says, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And then we get our command in this passage of what to do. The first commandment we have in these first 12 verses is verse 12, rejoice. It doesn't say go try to be persecuted. It just will happen. If you're living on your faith, it's going to happen. And when it happens, rejoice. Now, why would we do that? Because that seems really weird, even to me as a pastor. Like, I know the Bible. I'm like, I'm not trying to be persecuted. Somebody persecutes me. I'm going to be like, woe is me. I'm not gonna, but it says here to rejoice. And I can come up with reasons for us to rejoice. But look what the Bible actually says the reasons are. It gives us motivation to rejoice here. The first one, it says here, is that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's an authentication of that you're valid, like that you, it's evidence that you are an authentic follower of Jesus. Because persecution's promise, if you, I'm not saying you have to have it all the time, but if you never experience persecution for your faith, either you're such an underdeveloped follower of Jesus that you look like that first picture, no one can see Jesus in you anyways, or you're not really a follower of Jesus. You say, well, persecution doesn't really happen today. Well, some of you even post on your own social media this week a pastor in Africa who got his head cut off by Boko Haram. Some of you see that? That was this week that happened. Just after Christmas, I was reading a story about a bus that was going into Somalia that got pulled over by some militia, and they pulled everybody off the bus who wasn't Muslim. They killed them, presuming they were Christians. There were 10 people that got shot. If you don't think persecution happens today, there's more martyrs in the world today, you could argue, than perhaps any other time in history. Now, there's more people in the world today, so you can argue, like, does that mean there's more persecution? Well, most of us, when we think of persecution, we think of people getting their heads cut off. But did you notice in this passage that is not at all what Jesus described? Go back to the passage. Look at what it says right here in the passage. It says in verse 11, when he's describing the persecution, verse 10 talks about blessed are you that are persecuted. There's the kingdom of heaven. But then it says, when others revile you, that's words. When others revile you, that's probably words to your face, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, that's probably behind your back, falsely on my account. Some of you are being persecuted, you don't even know it. It's one of the reasons why you haven't gotten a promotion at the office. It's one of the reasons why somebody doesn't want to hang out with you. Somebody said something about you, it doesn't even have to be true. Because there was something in your life that came against the grain of them, and then they're speaking falsely against you. Let me say this, let me say this in case you've heard some of that information about believers. Time and truth ends in the same place. And so watch, their, if there's a, a consistent faithfulness for years and you heard something from someone, are you gonna believe what the thing you heard or watch their lives? Maybe you're the person that had it said against you. That's evidence of your authenticity that someone would go and say that against you because your life rubs up against their sin. It's, it's a reason to rejoice, but that's not the only reason to rejoice. Look at the passage. Another reason, you get a reward. There's a reward you get that people who are not persecuted don't get. Rejoice and be glad that your reward is great in heaven. Now let me pause here and say, some Christians get uncomfortable when you talk about rewards in our faith. Because we're saved by grace through faith. It's nothing we've done. Jesus did the work at the cross. And so they think, well, this is like works, salvation. It's like, no, we're not talking about salvation. This is for believers. And if you take the rewards away, what you're taking away is a, a huge motivator that Jesus gives throughout the Bible. Later in this sermon, he's gonna talk about how we use our money in Matthew chapter six. And he says, don't use your, your money to store up all these treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves steal. He says, use your money now 
to make an eternal investment is going to change how you spend eternity. Store up treasure in heaven. Here he says that if you're persecuted, you're getting a reward. People aren't persecuted, don't get. Later in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, he says this. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, this is a key phrase, for my namesake, not for their own fame, not for all that, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It says you get a reward. It's evidence of your salvation. And then also here, look at it. He counts you among the prophets. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know how many of you here have read the prophets. Uh, there's some weird dudes. Like, if you read Isaiah, Isaiah preaches naked. Read Isaiah 20. That's not normal. It's not just like, wow, they did some weird stuff back in. No, that's weird. Hosea, Hosea marries a prostitute, names his first kid, not my kid, then names another one, not loved. That's not normal. Ezekiel cooks barley cakes over poop. Sorry, we're at church. Manure. Okay? It's weird. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, he wears an ox yoke, read 27 and 28, Jeremiah 27 and 28, until another prophet breaks it off of him. That's like strange. Somebody's wiring around in the lobby with an ox yoke, he'd be like, call the police, like something's going on. And you can read about all these guys, but what you see is they're doing what God told them to do. And as strange as it seems, they're actually living out their message, which is what we're being called to in this passage. To be counted among the prophets means that we're living out the message, which takes us to our second B statement. Be a gospel influence. Be a gospel influence. Why? Because that's who you are. That's your identity. Look what he says next in, in the passage in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. You're not doing what you were created for. Except, or recreated for, we could say, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. (laughs) Now, this is interesting because this is also opposite of what our world teaches. A lot of us, we think that our identity is based on the things that we do. If I meet you out in the lobby today and we never met before, I say, hi, my name's Scott, who are you? I say, hey, my name's Drake. I'm a pastor. Well, that's what you do. You're not always gonna do that. It's not who you are. It's what you're currently doing. Or, hi, I'm, I'm Roshan. I'm a, I'm a doctor. Or, hi, I'm Steve. I'm a teacher. Like, whatever you're do- And we, we label what our identity is based on the things we do. Or here's another way to look at it. If I said to some of you, how are you doing spiritually? Many of you, because of the religion you've grown up in, You'll tell me, well, this is how much I read my Bible this week. This is a service project I'm involved in. Here's how much praying I do. I didn't ask that. That's not about your being. How are you doing? How is it going? Where you're standing before God? We're out of fellowship. We're in fellowship. Like, what is that? Well, here's the deal. Many of us have grown up thinking that Christianity is a performance-based religion. Every other world religion is, but Christianity is not. Christianity is an identity-based relationship. Many of us have grown up thinking that it was a performance-based religion, but it's actually an identity-based relationship. And if you notice in this passage, it doesn't say, go do saltiness. Muster up some light like we're fireflies. Mm, Try really hard, get some light out of me. Look what the passage says. It says, you are the salt of the earth. It doesn't say you have to go be salty. You are salty. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The problem is, that we oftentimes think that what we do determines our identity. We have it exactly opposite. 
of what God intended. Our identity should determine what we do. Who you are should then, your behavior does matter. You're going to see it's commanded to do these things, like throughout the scripture, gives commandments based on who you are in Christ. You are, your identity was changed at the moment of your salvation. When that picture was snapped, something did happen. You placed your faith in Christ. You went from being a child of wrath to a child of God, adopted into his family. Because what Jesus was doing at the cross, becoming your sin, he was doing that so you could become his righteousness. And so everything about your identity changed in that moment. In this passage, we get two of the statements. You are salt. You are light. And so then you notice what it says later. It says, don't hide the light. Don't live according to a false identity. Don't try to hide what's already true about you. And you want to become more like that? The Bible tells us how to do that too. It tells us how to develop as a disciple. Not in this passage, it just tells us what the picture looks like. But if you read in other places, you'll see it's by beholding Jesus Christ. It's not by getting a degree, a certificate, memorizing a certain amount of verses. It's the more you behold Jesus Christ, the more you become like Jesus Christ. Because you become what you behold. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. He uses the analogy of Moses coming down off the mountain with a glowing face. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation, being transformed into the same image, kind of like that Polaroid, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord. God's the one who's doing the work, who is spirit, and as you behold him, you become like him. We become like what we worship. And what does it say that we're supposed to be? Salt. Jesus was a change agent. What is salt? Well, I'm going to save you a little time, and I'm not just trying to discourage you from studying your Bible, but if you start reading like what a study Bible say, what other books say about what does Jesus mean here by salt, here's what you figure out. Nobody knows. <laughs> because there's so many options. <laughs> there are about 11 different analogies that people use from this passage. And they'll say that salt means this. Salt means preservation, and therefore, because of our presence and just the moral presence we have in our society, it would be a darker place if it wasn't for us, if God just removed us from here, and so we're supposed to preserve this place by just living it out. Or it means that we're supposed to add flavor, you know, tasty. And so I, I agree, Christians shouldn't be boring. We follow the Savior of the world. <laughs> if we're boring, we got a problem, not Jesus. One of my favorite analogies was it creates thirst. Because it made me ask myself the question, the people being around me want God as a result of being around me. And you ask, that, you ask yourself that question. What ultimately salt means is it's an influence. That's what we know for sure. It changes things, changes things around it because transformation leads to saturation. But when I think about the people spending time with me, not do they think I'm great or they think I'm awful, but do they want God? That's the real question. And I had this experience this past week, and some of you um, were at the funeral that we had here on Wednesday at the church, but one of our members, one of our family members, because these are our brothers and sisters that obey the Lord, right? His name's Ryan Treichler. You've been praying for him. His wife passed away. She's younger than me. She's 43 years old, and uh, was battling cancer for 12 years, and passed away just a, a few days ago. And she, she had uh, a son, Noah, he's a senior in high school, and daughter, Emma, uh, it's in eighth grade, and you can be praying for the whole Trekler family, but as a pastor, one of the, the blessings you get sometimes is you get invited into people's very sensitive moments. And I had known Rachel was battling cancer for a while, and, and we saw things weren't looking good for a little while, so I've been to the house before, but the day after she passed away, I was, I was going over there, and Ryan and I talked. I said, I'm gonna come over, we'll share some memories, we'll talk about the funeral. 
And when I was going to their house, I expected a very solemn, heavy, dark experience. And, uh, and just give some other context too. My wife had made some food. That's like one of the ways she loves people. It's because like, it's just what we do here in the South. That's what we do in church, right? Like, we don't know what to do, so we just feed people. And so she had made some food and she had given it to me and she told me there's gonna, this is gonna feed eight people. There's gonna be eight people there. When I pulled up, there were 20 cars outside of the house. <laughs> about 30 some people inside this house and I thought, oh no, here's my humble offering. Like I said it in the kitchen and I went out and then they were like, we're gonna eat right now. I'm like, no, like not while I'm here. And uh, I don't know what happened, but somehow God like did the fish and loaves thing. We had food left over when it was done. Like I don't know how that happened, but it did. And when I came into the house, and I don't, I don't say this in like, they weren't jovial. It wasn't like immature, like they weren't sure what to do with death and so they were joking around, but, but there was joy in the home. There was laughing, there was crying, for sure. There was weeping. But there was also this joy, and it was like I was seeing, verse four, makarios, a deep inner joy that can't be touched by circumstances. Blessed are the, makarios are those who mourn. Even in your mourning, oh, they were mourning. Not like those who have no hope, but they were mourning. And then I watched them over the next several days. There's a small group that was together, a small group in our church here. They call themselves an ohana, which means family. And they treat each other like family. And as I watched them, I was jealous for what they had. And I'm a Christian. That salt makes me want what you have and draws me closer to God. Does your life do that with other people? There's another analogy that's used here it's the same thing, it's teaching the exact same thing, it's just a different metaphor, it's, it's light. You are the light of the world, it says here in this passage. And so, think about what light does. Light illuminates, light directs, light makes it more clear. Have you ever been in total darkness before? I mean like, no like light pollution coming in, no, no sunlight. Like, I remember one time I went in a cave in, in West Virginia on purpose. <laughs> That's a bad decision. But I was, I was with a group of folks. We were climbing through this cave in West Virginia, and we had these little lights on our helmets. And we got to a spot where we weren't by the entrance, and you couldn't see the exit. And the guide that had been in this cave before, at least we trusted that he had, uh, told us to turn the lights off. So we all turned our lights off. I literally couldn't see my hand in front of my face. He talked for about 10 minutes. After about 10 minutes, we're totally adjusted to the dark. He asked one person out of our group of about 10 people, he said, turn your light on. When they turn their light on, do you know how bright that seemed? It's a lamp on their head. Do you know how dark this world is that we live in? I don't know if you pay attention to what's happening, how different it is than what the scripture says. But last year, and this isn't a political statement, this is just talking about evil. Last year when they they legalized late-term abortions in New York City and people were cheering celebrating that this has happened? That's wicked. Watch it, flip through your channels. There's parades and celebrations of debauchery, like on every channel almost. So just a little bit of light. You know what, what a difference a little bit of light can make? That takes us to our third B statement. It's be intentional on your mission. Be intentional on your mission. Be ready for opposition. Be a gospel influence, that's salt and light, it's influential no matter which analogy you pick, that's the point, it's influential, but be intentional on your mission and your mission is not your personal glory. Look at what it says in verse 16. In the same way, after using these metaphors of salt and light, let your light, you are light, let your light, just don't hide it, shine before others so that they may see your good works. What are your good works? It's living out your faith. 
It's all the commands of Scripture. It's verses 3 through 9, being poor in spirit. It's totally dependent upon God. Mourning sin. These are your good works. It's not you have to come up with like some philanthropic thing to go and do. It's like living out your faith and give glory to, not you, your Father who's in heaven. We're so self-conscious, this seems contrary. Like, it, I, I, it's possible I get off the stage and go, how do they, what do they think of the sermon? Like, and be so insecure and so self-conscious, but the answer is, it doesn't matter. Do they think more about God? Do they point them to God? Do they have a better revelation of who God is? Are they more fearful of God? Do they want to live out their faith more, more hungry for God? That's the point. And some of us were like, we've talked to somebody in the lobby, he's like, oh, I don't know, probably bad. You've been drinking coffee and talking all day. This is here, do they think about God? Because if so, that leads to gospel saturation. That's what the early church did. Do you know the early church, if you study them, they grew by 40% per decade in the early church. 40%, think about that growth rate, per decade. Not like just an instant surge, because there was a group of simple people. They were marginalized, uneducated, persecuted people that believed things like, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. Don't grow weary in doing good works. Let your light shine before men. It's better to give than to receive. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, they gotta deny themselves and take up the cross, and they lived it out. In fact, some historians say these things about the early church. I'll read you a couple quotes. Michael Green, he says this, the link between holy living and effective evangelism could, could hardly be made more effectively. So think about that. So many times we think, in order to get people from this world in, we gotta just be just as much like the culture as possible so they feel comfortable. You know what we're doing? We're not offering any alternative to this culture. And what people were seeing here was, hey, this other stuff, it's leaving me empty, but these Christians, there's something different. It says, in particular, Christians stood out for their chastity, their hatred of cruelty, their civil obedience, good citizenship. They did not expose infants, what that means. They didn't have abortion then like a procedure, a medical procedure. If you had a baby you didn't want, you took it out to the garbage dump and you let it die, death by exposure. And so what would happen is the Christians would go pick these babies up and they didn't expose their own children. They did not swear, they refused to have anything to do with idolatry and its byproducts, such lives made a great impact. Even the heathen opponents of Christianity admitted as much. And then he goes on to say, it is difficult to overestimate this moral emphasis in the growth of the second century Christianity. It wasn't because it was behavior modification, they were being who they are. And when you've been transformed and what flows out of you is life changed. Rodney Stark, another guy says this, the key reason for Christians having a big influence was their willingness to sacrifice themselves out of love for each other and for their world. This raised, and this couldn't be a more perfect quote for this passage of scripture, this raised an explosion of light and heat the world had never known. 40% growth per decade. And I've told you stories before of how they sacrificed themselves when the plagues came through Rome it was the Christians who would nurse people. They got kicked out of their homes by their family. They, at risk of their own lives, would nurse people back to health, some of them dying of the disease. That when babies were being exposed to the garbage heap, it was Christians that would go and pick those babies up, bring them back, and raise them in their home. Can you imagine if you were one of those babies and you found out my biological parents threw me in the garbage? But you were, I'd be real interested in the gospel because I'd see it made a real difference in my parents' lives, my adoptive parents' lives. And that changed the world. Let me tell you what's happening today. Christianity is on a huge decline in America as we become more and more like the culture, by the way. It's been happening for 50 years. This isn't like a new alarming thing. 
But about 15 years ago, the decline increased dramatically. People who do these studies have analyzed it, and let me read you what they say is going to happen in the next 30 years. These are, these are from, this is from a study. This is not some pastor making this stuff up. The estimates are that between 28 million, that's best case scenario, and 42 million young people being raised currently in self-identified Christian homes will leave Jesus Christ. That's people that are in Bridge Kids right now, that are with our student ministry right now, that are sitting next to some of you right now, will walk away from the faith. Why? Why is this happening? They tell us. Quote again, so I'm not over-speaking here. This is not pastor hyperbole. It turns out the vast majority of young people leaving the church have not done a deep intellectual dive study of the truth claims and come up with a theological dissent with Christianity. It's not they disagree with the Bible. It's not an argument of theology. Most simply think a life with Jesus doesn't matter. They see no real difference in us as the generation before them. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light. Now, we're all at different stages. We're all different spots. The picture's developed at a different rate for different ones of us, but that picture was taken. Something happened. We should see some difference taking place. Ultimately, the goal is that you look like Christ. Here's the thing, in a world that opposes Christ. And so the question for you, going back to our original analogy of the poor, are you willing to look like Christ in a world that opposes Christ? Oh, if you want to look like him, behold him. Grow closer to him. Don't hide who you actually are and the work that he's done in your life. Because that will cause spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. And this place, Raleigh, Durham, Cary, Chapel Hill, Wake Forest, Holly Springs, Apex, could be a city on a hill because you are here and your Father receives glory.